And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've been talking about the impact of inflation upon retirement. And as we're learning from our host, Pat Vitucci, it's not just what happens year over year, but really the long-term cumulative impact of inflation. And Pat, we've shared some examples in the first part of the program where over the course of, say, just a decade in the 1970s when our parents retired, my goodness, they experienced inflation in that 10-year period Cumulative total of 103.45%. That's a pretty significant erosion of buying power. Now, certainly, as we've discussed, the whole matter of taking a look at risk, the correlation between risk and inflation to make sure that there's proper diversification inside of your portfolio is critically important. But I have to wonder, is there a means by which we can also insure ourselves against inflation? I mean, we insure our cars, we insure our homes, we insure our health. Is there a way that we can insure part of our retirement? Well, there are. If you own a home, you probably have insurance on your house. If you own a car, you almost certainly have car insurance. So there are ways in the investing world to guarantee and insure income for life. A very controversial word. I'm going to use it. Guess what, Craig? It's called an annuity. And there is so much on the internet about annuities. A lot of great stuff. And there are a lot of very negative things that, frankly, I think mislead. Talk about the guy or gal who just retired in 2008, had a giant chunk of money and retired, and his giant chunk of money was cut in half. If he had some of that money in an annuity, he would would have gone on for the rest of his life at that guaranteed income rate. The only thing that the, the annuity does, it turns the liability over to an insurance company, just like you do with your house. Just like you do with your car, you turn some money over to an insurance company. Yes, there are fees. You got to look at the prospectus, understand what the fee structure is. But if you could live with the fee and say, okay, I'm going to buy a fixed annuity, or I'm going to buy a variable annuity, or I'm going to buy some hybrid fixed index annuity, all it simply does is you give the insurance company a chunk of money and they say, we're going to guarantee this income for the rest of your life. And if you've lived to be 117, that's okay. And if you lived for two more weeks, we're sorry, and we're going to give your chunk of money over to your beneficiaries. There are a few exceptions to that. If you buy an immediate annuity, you pick the wrong elections, the insurance company keeps the balance. So you probably don't want to pick those kinds of plans. But if the kind of plan you have is a fixed annuity or a variable annuity or indexed annuity, the surviving balance goes to your heirs. And you want certainly want to protect your family because we don't know if our lives are going to last two weeks or 27 years. So buying an annuity for some of your money, what we call your safe money, can give you that assurance. Let's face it, we probably have a social security check, hopefully going to be guaranteed for life. We think that will survive all the politics of the day. Continue to have a social security check. Going to probably, hopefully have a good annuity check if you bought from an A or A plus rated company that they've survived through recessions and wars and depressions and all the bad stuff in life. You want to pick those companies that have the good conservative balance sheet that they can pay out claims for the rest of your life and then and upon your death, pay your beneficiaries, your spouses for the rest of their life. So there's a portion of those dollars that you would consider an annuity. Again, lots of marketing and lots of hype out there about how terrible they are, but there are billions of dollars in these plans. In fact, the government in many ways, has promoted 
some of your money to be in an annuity. If they had their way, all your money would be in annuity, so it guarantees income, so that you don't get too outraged and, and gamble too much, lose your money, and now you become a burden for the state, which we know is very difficult. They're having troubles making ends meet right from the start. There's also another arena where we can provide a sense of security or insurance on our retirement, and that comes to the whole issue, Pat, of health care. We know certainly that uh, Medicare is there. Some people buy supplemental policies, so if there's a gap in the coverage, we certainly have some protection there. One of the biggest ways in which we can experience erosion of our capital is if we have to be in a nursing home for an extended period of time. And that's where long-term care insurance can really play an important role, can't it? You know, nobody likes to buy insurance. Nobody is fond of insurance companies. Let's face it, they take your premium. In many cases, you don't get any benefit back. But what about those cases? Then they may not be as isolated as we think. If you have a a long-term care confinement that requires you to stay in a nursing home or you need special equipment to be brought into your home or you need adult daycare to assist, it'd be nice to depend on, on your children, but they've got commitments, commitments at work. They've got children to take care of. And now to burden a daughter or a son and somehow more frequently falls on the daughter to give up her career, to give up her life, to take care of mom or dad. And that becomes emotionally draining financially draining. So a long-term care plan, Craig, as you point out, is simply a way to play the odds a little bit that if you have some exposure there, you get some modest check or a giant check or a complete check to cover the entire experience. In many cases, you don't need the premium Mercedes-Benz plan. Maybe you just need the Chevrolet plan that provides some offset to cover some of the very expensive costs. I mean, many of us have had experience where it's eight to 10 to 12 grand per month. And we're not talking about staying at at the Ritz Carlton, Craig. This is somebody that either comes into your home or you're staying at, at an assisted living place to help with just routine life. You know, whether it's helping getting dressed, helping bathing, maybe even assisting in eating or special medication. Medication management is a very big issue. Uh, I know from firsthand experience, as our parents' cognitive skills weaken, just forgetting to take pills on a regular basis can have dramatic impact on long-term health. So long-term care is that policy that we hate to talk about, but it's sometimes a factor in our entire portfolio design which has to be included into our retirement budget. So as we've learned today, there are a number of key steps that we need to take when it comes to our planning for retirement that takes into consideration things like risk, reward, inflation rates, then, of course, the unexpected, particularly as it relates to health care later on in life. Want some help analyzing all of that to make sure, in fact, you are on track and have considered all of the ups and the downs of retirement, why not call today and schedule a complimentary financial health and retirement plan review? Now, again, there's never any cost or obligation, and there are offices throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, Northern California, of Vitucci and Associates to serve you. To schedule your appointment, simply call toll-free 800-472-8305. That's 800 800- Four seven two eight three zero five. You can also schedule that appointment conveniently online. Simply go to don'tinvestandforget.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
a true confession time. Those of you that have been a long-time listener to this program or have read uh, my um, bio workup on the website probably know that I'm a bit of a collector. I have a um, collection of antique and vintage radios that span the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that I've been collecting and slowly restoring down through many, many years. It's just kind of a, of a hobby. Many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, I began collecting 78 records and have um, down through the years by visiting quite a number of <laughs> flea markets and garage sales and the like, amassed a pretty good-sized collection there, too. And, you know, after a while, you, you begin to realize that as much as you might uh, enjoy collecting stuff, either because you do it out of a hobby or sometimes you do it because you gives, it gives you a sense of, of emotional security or you just can't throw the stuff out, and then you begin to realize that slowly you're overwhelmed by it all. I guess the question is, as we talk today about this issue of feeling stuffed or overstuffed by stuffed, how do we deal with it all? Um, this can run the gambit of those on the extreme end of the continuum that are um, perhaps potential candidates for the Hoarders TV program to people that maybe don't live under piles of garbage, but they still have so much stuff in their life that they feel completely overwhelmed by it. And it begs the question, are you overwhelmed by life? that you become overwhelmed by stuff, or is it vice versa? We're going to get some wonderful insights today from best-selling author Ruth Sukup. Her new book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. She is the um, founder of livingwellspendingless.com and creator of the Living Well Planner. We'll tell you more about how you can find out uh, details concerning her ministry a little bit later on in tonight's program. And uh, meanwhile, Ruth, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's talk about this issue. I've, I've had a bit of experience in dealing with this of recent times um, with family members that have passed away. And um, yes. as is typical, you have to come in and become the cleanup party. And um, it's, uh, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes when you're going through years of things that have been collected, some stuff very lovingly, other things that seem to be, from your perspective, kept for no good potential reason. And of course, as, as we try to figure out why we're so attached to stuff as it is, uh, it would seem to me that a lot of this has to do with just the, the culture of materialism that we have in the world today. I think it does have a lot to do with the culture of materialism. I think we are inundated with messages every time we turn around saying, you know, buy more, buy more, get this. This is going to be the thing that's going to make you happy. This is the thing that's going to make you more efficient. This is the thing that's going to get you organized. And we buy into every single message, and sometimes not even every single message, but we buy into some of the messages, and that's enough because there's so much, and it's so pervasive, and it ends up filling our life, and everything we think is going to make our life simpler actually only serves to complicate everything. And, uh, you know, some of this begs the, the, the age-old, uh, which came first, chicken or egg question. Is it a sense <laughs> of people who become so overwhelmed by life that they eventually become overwhelmed by stuff. There's things going on, and so it's it's less a matter of having energy to go through, tidy the house, throw things away, things get put off, procrastination creeps in, uh, all of that. Or is it a case where people kind of give up 
because they become so overwhelmed by stuff that it seems as if they they just don't know where to begin. They're not quite certain how all of this happened. They just know that now that they're there, they have no idea how to begin addressing it. Is it either or or what? I think it's probably a little bit of both. It's almost like a, a crazy cycle that we find ourselves getting into where one makes the other worse and you, you don't know exactly what started, but they kind of, once you're in there, it's really hard to get out of the cycle. Um, and, you know, it's really not just the, the physical clutter and the physical stuff in our life that weighs us down. It's, and for some people, there's, you know, it's sometimes it's the physical clutter and then other times it's the mental clutter. It's the way that we overstuff our schedules. It's the paperwork and the information overload that's just constantly bombarding us. Uh, or it could even be the guilt that we feel, you know, you were talking about when you inherit other people's stuff. We deal with, with that, and that's something that I talk about in the book as well. So there's lots of different ways that it manifests itself, but I think the results are often the same. It's this feeling of overwhelm. Now, in my recent experience in dealing with this with a family member, uh, part of it, I think, it has to do with the byproduct of being a Depression-era baby, somebody who went through that period of time that knows what it's like to go without and therefore has a very um, conservative side to them, uh, a fondness of recycling, though things never quite make it all the way to the recyclers. And so, you know, I guess it becomes a way that that some of this can be um, justified. In other words, uh, plastic margarine tubs are saved because they can be recycled and used for food. So if you keep one or two, why not keep 50 or 100? Or uh, toilet paper rolls that can be kept because you can use them as great little holders for extension cords. But then again, how many extension cords do you really practically have? Aluminum foil, well, aluminum foil can be flattened out and reused. And before you know it, it's not just an accumulation of things that are of value, things you want to keep, things that have sentimental value, but then you quickly get overwhelmed by all of this other stuff that, quite frankly, at the end of the day, has no real intrinsic value to it. But your sense of having lived through times of great sacrifice and not having compels you to keep all of this. Yes. Yeah. And that, and you find that a lot in that depression era generation. And, you know, there's, I, I, there's not necessarily an easy solution for that either because it's almost this mindset that's so ingrained. But then what's happening now is that generation is beginning to, you know, pass on. There, it's the kids that are inheriting all of this, this whole house full of stuff, and some of it is, is worthwhile, and a lot of it is not, and having to sift through and deal with that, and that only adds to the overwhelm, because we already have all of our own stuff, and then we get other people's stuff added into the mix as well, so it gets, it gets to be this crazy, crazy cycle of so much stuff, and what do you do with it? And there's a little bit of justification to this, isn't there? Because let's face it, we have been uh, hit over the head with this message of recycle things, save the planet, conserve. And so therefore, as I found with this one family member, uh, there was great care and effort given to recycling plastic and aluminum and glass and paper and, and stacks and piles and things and, and, and relatively organized. It's just that it never seemed to make it to the recyclers. 
And before you know it, you get overwhelmed by all of these things that, yes, have some, you know, use in a recycling environment. But I wonder if some of these messages today don't become a crutch that people can use or a pretext that allows them to continue to accumulate because they think someday I'll use it again or I'll recycle it. Well, I think the idea that I might use this someday is definitely one of the big reasons that people hang on to stuff. And there's a lot of guilt that gets attached to stuff. And this is something that I really talk about in, in my book, Unstuffed, where there is there are lots of different types of guilt that get attached to stuff. So some of it is, well, this could be useful and I don't want to throw it away because I might use it someday. There's guilt that gets attached to stuff because it's an unfulfilled goal or an unfulfilled dream. So say you bought some scrapbooking material because you had grand visions of creating this scrapbook of all of your memories and you never got around to it. And then you don't want to get rid of the stuff because if you do, it means that you failed in this idea that you had um, of scrapbooking or, you know, you don't want to get rid of something because it was a gift or because you spent lots of money on it. And so, all of these different guilt um, things manifest themselves in different ways, but it all ends up resulting in holding on to too much stuff. And then that, in turn, makes us feel guilty because we're, you know, our lives are cluttered and we feel overwhelmed and we're guilty because we're holding on to this stuff and yet we feel guilty for getting rid of it. And so, again, it gets us into this cycle of not being able to let go, but not wanting to hold on to stuff either. And the solution for that really is a couple of different things. You know, for sentimental items, we really have to learn how to separate out the memories from the stuff. And that's hard, isn't it? Because there's that sense of guilt over gifts or something that's tied into sentimental value, especially if it's a loved one who's passed away. Yes. I, I found myself going through and finding things when my parents passed that... Uh, under any other circumstances, if somebody had said, do you need this? Do you want this? Does this mean? Nah, not really. Oh, you know, mom gave it to me 10 years ago, but yeah, that can go away. After she passed away, all of a sudden, things that were the most insignificant become of great value because you reason in your mind, well, that's the last time she will ever give that to me, or I know that I'll never receive a gift from her again, and there suddenly we assign tremendous emotional value to something that quite frankly may be of no value whatsoever yes and that is incredibly difficult and i understand exactly what you're talking about we just went through that um and i talk about that in the book as well with my mother-in-law passed away about four years ago and then my sister-in-law um tragically passed away about two years ago and so we inherited both of their you know, estates and had to had to kind of go through that process twice, just back to back. And it was really difficult because you feel like you are throwing away somebody's life when you have to get rid of their stuff. And even though it's it was a lot of it wasn't sentimental necessarily to us, it was sentimental because we loved them. And and I think that's a little bit what you're speaking about. And so we really had to get to this point where we realized that the memories of our loved ones were not the same as their stuff. We had to separate the memory from the stuff and realize that memories and stuff are not the same. And that's really the only way that you can kind of deal with this influx of other people's stuff from a sentimental standpoint. 
We're visiting today with Ruth Sukup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. For a lot of us, this is a difficult issue to deal with. It seems like the older we get, we certainly tend to accumulate lots and lots more stuff. How do we begin to give some order to our lives that will not only um, deal with the issue, but, but ultimately give us the kind of liberty that we're looking for? And I'll give you one hint. When we come back after the break and continue our conversation with Ruth, I'm going to suspect she's going to tell us that the problem here is not a lack of space. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. Our nation's pandemic and subsequent financial crisis has affected hundreds of thousands. Many of those hardest hit are right here in the Bay Area. Many are neighbors, friends, even folks we go to church with. Jobless, hopeless, homeless. Since 1965, the Bay Area Rescue Mission has been caring for the homeless and impoverished, providing food, shelter, and a fresh start for those struggling with addiction or personal crisis. The Bay Area Rescue Mission delivers the hope of the gospel message to each and every one they reach. Simply go to bayarearescue.org. At this critical time, with so many lives in financial turmoil, your partnership with the Bay Area Rescue Mission helps meet the physical needs of hurting families and the spiritual needs as well. To share your tax-deductible gift of hope today, simply go to bayarearescue.org. Love without limits. The Bay Area Rescue Mission. BayAreaRescue.org. BayAreaRescue.org. Unisex bathrooms, sex education for students in the second grade makes you wonder what is happening to public education in the state of California. As a Christian parent, if this troubles you, and justifiably so, perhaps you're beginning to consider moving your son or daughter to private education. Certainly a wise move. But if concerns over tuition has been a barrier for you, then I've got some wonderful news. KFAX is extending our back-to-school program, normally 50% off. But now through June 30th, you can take an additional 10% off for a first-time, first-year child's enrollment and enjoy a full 60% off the usual tuition rate for the first school year. You heard me right, 60% off. Wonderful schools across the Bay Area that are participating, including Walnut Creek Christian Academy, where they educate the whole child by cultivating mind, heart, body, and soul for Christ. They have openings available elementary through middle school or Victory Christian Academy, where, again, elementary through high school there, partnering with families to provide nurturing and challenging educational experiences in a Christ-centered community where students are renewed in the image of their creator and equipped to live out their God-given purpose for his glory and for the good of others. Certainly, we all want that for your children. If you've been concerned about what's happening with your child in public schools, take advantage of KFAX's special half-off tuition program and now receive an additional 10% through June 30th. But you must act today. Just a handful of vouchers and this program will end June 30th. 60% off through the end of June. Go to halfofftuitions.com. That's halfofftuitions.com or call toll-free 800-947-5329. 800-947-5329 or at halfofftuitions.com. Hi there, Jordan Michaels here. Inventor of MyPillow products, Mike Lindell, understands the importance of rest. 
and is passionate about helping others get a good night's sleep. He's created a great pillow, some wonderful bedding and towels, but he didn't stop there. No, he created comfort for us all day long. He's introducing his newest product, My Slippers. Taking over two years to develop, My Slippers are designed to wear indoors and outdoors, so really you can wear them all day long. Made with quality leather suede with the My Pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue. For a limited time, you can save $90 on your pair of My Slippers. Yes, $90 off the price. To order, call 800-479-1790. Use the promo code KFAX or MyPillow.com. Click the radio listener square. This is a limited time offer. Don't want you to miss it. Call 800-479-1790 or MyPillow.com. Use the promo code KFAX. Study verse by verse is the teaching ministry of Pastor Leighton Sheely from Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. Tune in weeknights at 7.30 to hear Pastor Leighton teach through the Word of God with hope-filled and timely messages. Church of the Highlands welcomes you to worship with them at 1900 Monterey Drive in San Bruno at one of their six weekend services. And to be blessed by Daybreak with Pastor Don at 6.30 a.m. And now study verse by verse with Pastor Leighton at 7.30 p.m. right here on AM 1100 KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting with New York Times bestselling author Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Ruth, to most of us that are collectors or gatherers of lots of stuff, of value and otherwise, uh, the typical explanation, at least in our own mind, and perhaps even the justification to others is, it isn't an issue that I have too much stuff. You don't understand, Ruth. It's just that I don't have enough space. I need more closet space. My house isn't big enough. I need to run out to Walmart and go get some storage containers. That will solve my stuff problem. What about that reasoning? Oh, and I am so, so guilty of that mentality. In fact, for years, I shuffled my stuff around thinking, I live in Florida where we don't have a lot of storage space because there are no basements here in Florida. And there, you know, you can't store stuff in the garage or the attic because it's too hot. And so I would complain all the time that, oh, we just don't have enough closet space. There's no place to store anything. And I would buy more containers and more boxes and more bins trying to organize it. And I, I just kept thinking, It's just that I don't have the right system. I can't stay organized because I don't have the right system. And it finally, finally occurred to me at some point that my problem wasn't a lack of storage space at all. It was that I just had too much stuff. And every time I was going to Target to buy more organizing containers, I was also buying more stuff. And because, you know, I'd get caught up in the cute pillow or the cute picture frame or the cute candle because everything there is cute. And so... It was something that I just had to really realize that my problem wasn't storage space at all. It was it was definitely the fact that I had too much stuff. Now you and realize, that, of course, the entire storage space industry out there, everybody that rents these lockers and pods <laughs> and everything else, they're going to be very disappointed to hear this because they have spent decades convincing us that it's not a matter of having too much stuff. It's a matter of not having enough space to put it in. <laughs> Yes. Well, I'm sure they'll be doing just fine with the with the rate at which Americans are buying stuff. I don't <laughs> think they have to worry too much. But, you know, it really is in our lives. I think it's such a matter of learning how to stop the flow of stuff that's coming in. And I, I have an acronym that I like to use to help people 
when they're trying to declutter their lives. Of It's sort of a four-step process, but the acronym is FREE, F-R-E-E. And so the first step is your F step, which is to fight to stop the flow. And until you do that, you really can't work on anything else because if you're still, all the decluttering and all the purging in the world is not going to help you if you're still going to Target every week and buying new things and filling up your home. So that's really, really the most important element of decluttering is to just actually be very vigilant about not letting any new stuff in. That's the first step. Then second, you can start working on ruthlessly purging. So that's your R step is that you definitely want to begin getting rid of the things that you don't need. And my criteria for that is anything that is currently useful despite who gave it to you and despite how much it costs. But wait a minute, Ruth, let me interrupt. I I realize that this stack of magazines is five feet tall, but you don't understand there are recipes in there that I need to cut out of there. Or, or, you know, a lot of the, for a guy, a lot of those magazines, you know, popular mechanics and, uh, you know, the latest sporting magazines, you know, I want to be able to keep all of the information about the amazing season that the San Francisco Giants had last year. And so I just need to I'm gonna so this weekend. I'm gonna set aside time and clip out all those articles. Are you really? You're not convinced, are you? <laughs> because everybody who says that, you're right. the The question really is, are you really? Because the answer is no, not really. That's just a pretext to keep it all. Right, and that's where we have to really be honest with ourselves and say, currently useful. Have I have I used this? And I have I looked at these magazines in the last six months or a year? And if the answer is no, and I can understand that, that hanging on to old magazines, because I actually do hang on to old magazines, not and, and I don't look at them that often, but I do look at them sometimes. And so, and I think they're pretty and I have them in my office and I have them stacked and organized. So one of the things that's really, really important that, and I talk about this a lot in the book is creating a vision for your home. And that's really important because a lot of times we have this idea of what our home is supposed to look like and what how we're supposed to be organized and how we're supposed to live clutter free. And so if we if we read magazines and we look at, you know, House Beautiful or Pinterest and we have all these visions in our head of what the ideal is supposed to be. So a lot of the things we buy are based on the ideal and not how we actually use our home. But at the same time, we all have a different threshold for what we can tolerate in terms of clutter. What is clutter to me might not feel like clutter to you and vice versa. So the first thing that you really, really need to do is is become absolutely clear about what your vision is of your home and how you actually use your home and who you share your home with and how they use your home so that you can set up a standard for kind of what you're going for. Isn't there, though, a lot of justification that takes place, uh, Ruth, when it comes to this whole definition of how you define clutter versus how I define it? And I ask that question going back to a loved one who, if queried and pressed hard enough, might someone admit that, yeah, it's a little bit cluttered and yet difficult to admit clearly, yeah, there's a lot of clutter here. When it's down to a pathway down the hallway, it's clutter. It, 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 it's hard to 
you know, I, I know that there are extremes. Somebody says if there's if there's two file folders on the desk, that's clutter. And others say there could be 20 file folders, stacks of file folders on the desk. But so long as they're all organized, not strewn every which way, and I know what's in each pile, I don't consider it clutter. But I'm talking about those extreme degrees where people justify, uh, perhaps not as much to others as they do to themselves, that it really isn't clutter when at the end of the day it is clutter. Well, I think that the criteria needs to be what's causing stress. If it if it does not if it honestly does not bother you and you you like things a certain way and it doesn't cause frustration and it doesn't cause stress, then more power to you. Then I think you know you need to understand that. But a lot of times with people and clutter, it is causing stress. And there are things that are, are weighing down on you. You know, it might be the stress of not ever being able to find anything. And that is stressful. Not paying bills on time because your, your paperwork is completely unorganized. And, or it might be that, you know, you're a, a, a couple lives together and they have different thresholds. And so they fight a lot about a mess because one, the mess doesn't bother them at all. And the other is, is very bothered by it. So when they're, when the clutter is causing stress, either in your relationship or in your life or um, in any sort of area, then that's when I think that it becomes problematic. People can have different thresholds, but if there's a threshold that's causing stress, that's where you need to start addressing it. And of course, there's a degree to which uh, the old adage, it takes two to tango. And uh, sometimes we find people are drowning together, aren't they? Where maybe uh, maybe one spouse after a season just gives up because they've not been able to encourage the, the clutter collector to break the habit. Oh, absolutely. I think, <laughs> you know, I like to say that couples sharpen each other's swords, but it can go the other way, too. And sometimes, you know, you you just for the sake of peace, you end up um, one gives in. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Ruth Sokup, a guest today. Her book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul, even organizing things like all the paperwork that in life are necessities. How do we deal with that? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the discussion with Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, decluttering your home, mind, and soul. Now, I made mention before the break, Ruth, we have everything from sentimental things like birthday cards, anniversary cards that we wish to keep down through the years. My grandmother had a collection that when she passed away, we discovered went back all the way to Valentine's Day cards in the 1920s. Some amazing stuff and very grateful that she kept all of that. But then we add to that the list of recipes and news magazine articles. And then, of course, you have everything related to income taxes and and legal papers, uh, some people of which keep not only years, decades worth of stuff. I'll tell you a story. I've done this show for 25 years plus now. And in the early days, pre-internet, everything was paper and everything got filed in filing cabinets. And over the course of many years, I had accumulated a total of four five-drawer vertical file filing cabinets. That's 20 filing cabinet drawers worth of stuff. 
And it got to the point where we finally realized with the advent of the Internet and the ability to scan papers and save them into a computer that there was no need for all of that anymore, that any of the documents and information and notes and resources that had been accumulated over the course of a decade, two decades, that had all been neatly filed away could actually all be neatly ground up into scrap paper and all of it could be utilized or gained off the Internet. Is that one approach to go electronic when it comes to managing a lot of the information that we want to keep from family photographs to, quite frankly, all the legal paperwork necessary for tax season and the like? Well, actually, you know, the Internet is kind of a double-edged sword because it has improved the the amount of paper, I guess, lessened the amount of actual physical paper we have, but it has increased the amount of information that we have coming at us so much that it is just as overwhelming, if not more overwhelming, than the actual physical paper that we have piling up on our desk. And I like to say that paper paper, paper clutter and information clutter, which I kind of view as almost the same thing because the problem is the same, it's not really a clutter problem, but it's a procrastination problem. And what I mean by that is that most of the paper that we get and that comes to us and most of the information that comes to us via email is all requiring our action. So what it's doing is overwhelming us because we're procrastinating to make a decision and we don't want to have to make a decision about all of these things because our brains can't handle that number of decisions all of the time. And so we procrastinate it and, the, and it piles up and then it gets worse. And again, we get into another cycle of craziness because there's so many decisions that have to be made at any given time. And there's so many things demanding our attention and demanding our response. If somebody emails me, I'm expected to return their, their email and then they email me back. And it's this kind of endless cycle of of need and response that we have to attend to all the time. And that becomes very, very overwhelming. I think there was a confession I read in the book (laughs) related to things like keeping emails or keeping voicemail messages for a long time to the point that the box got filled. I I know several people that have that same habit. (laughs) Yeah, I actually, I have offered that as a solution because voicemails are another thing. So what I did, I was my voicemail box I let it fill up um, about two years ago, and it has been full ever since. So it is impossible to leave me a voicemail, and that has uncomplicated my life in so many ways. It's amazing. I never have to listen to voicemails. I don't. If somebody can't get a hold of me, they try back later, and or they send me a text message, and, <laughs> and it works out so much better for me. It's just one less thing that I have to check and that I have to listen to and then I have to respond to, and so. You know, I I don't know that that's the best solution, but I think that one of the things that you can do, and this is what goes for paper clutter or email clutter, is create an information filter for yourself. So basically, what that means is that it's it's just instead of internal rules that tells our brain what to pay attention to and what to ignore, and it's some sort of little guideline that we have that our brain can automatically go, oh. This came in here, and so this goes over here. And so it's an if this, then that. And if if we can set up enough of those easy rules for our brain, then it sifts everything for us, and we don't have to make quite as many decisions, which means we're not quite quite as overwhelmed. 
Is it helpful, too, to come up with a management program, so to speak, in your own mind that helps reduce the stuff before it becomes stuff? And I asked that question because I started doing something many, many years ago. Uh, I located a recycling bin very near the entrance to the house from the garage so that when I come in uh, after work and I go through the mail, there are flyers and circulars and petitions and ads and all of that stuff. I don't give it a chance to get into the house. It makes it as far as that front door. If it has a name on it that maybe I think, oh, I don't want this to be just thrown into the trash can, so I'm going to shred it, I'll maybe tear that off. But otherwise, I will tell you this, with great disappointment to all of you out there that send me ads and circulars and flyers in the mail, it never makes it across the threshold because it all stops in the recycling bin at the garage door. Is that a good idea? That is exactly how an information filter works. You have already set one up without even knowing it. It's your if is if you've got junk mail, it goes straight into the recycling bin, and that's exactly how it works. So when you can set up those type of simple, simple rules, and it, and I mean it has to be simple. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to getting organized, we think we have to set up these complicated systems and filing systems, and everything has to be color coded and. We overcomplicate the process, and then what happens is we don't follow through on it because it's too complicated to keep up on. It's too complicated for the rest of our family to understand, and it doesn't work. But the simpler you can make the system, the simpler you can make the rule where it becomes so automatic that you don't even think about it, that's when you start to eliminate the overwhelm. Let's talk about some other ideas in terms of eliminating the overwhelm. And, of course, the big question is, how do we even get started? And, and I, I've gone through this myself where you, you look at the piles and go, my goodness, it goes from that corner to that corner. I, I, do I begin at the bottom and work my way to the top? Do I start at the top or work my way to the bottom? And, and by the time you've contemplated this for a good five or ten minutes, it's sometimes just easier to say, mm, you know what, I'll, I'll come back to this tomorrow. How do you begin to get the process really started? Well, you know, there's a couple of different things depending on your personality and depending on what you have time for. One of the things I offer in the book is um, a list of quick wins, things that you can do in five minutes or less. And sometimes that's really helpful for people. Once you see a little bit of progress, it helps you um, snowball into more progress. Another thing you can do is do, you know, tackle one area of your home per day and commit to that. And we actually have a challenge um, on my blog, Living Well, Spending Less, called 31 Days to a Clutter-Free Life, which gives you 31 days of, of decluttering projects. But one other suggestion that I offer in the book is what I call the Unstuffed Weekend Challenge. So that is sort of like a quick win on steroids because you set aside an entire weekend starting on Friday evening and going through Sunday evening and you're, you plan ahead and you plan your meals ahead so that you've got easy meals. You don't have to worry about cooking and cleaning up and you know, arrange childcare if you've got kids at home or if they're older, you can have them help. But the entire weekend, and I give you an hour by hour schedule of where you start and what you do, you set the timer, you do all different activities throughout the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, you've made a lot of progress. And and that can give you enough confidence to keep going forward. And I should mention to listeners, there is a complete suggested plan of attack, so to speak, inside the pages of Ruth's new book that will be very helpful in helping you to kind of get that strategy up and running. Before our time winds down here, Ruth, I want you to say a word about the impact of stuff 
on relationships. And you talk about this, too, in the book. Uh, we've certainly heard and, and maybe even directly experienced cases where stuff comes between us and others. Um, sometimes it's a substitute for others. Sometimes maybe it's safer than relationships. Speak to that, if you would, please. Well, you know, in the book, I do talk a lot about um, decluttering your relationships and the importance of decluttering your relationships. And that gets a little bit tricky because we can't unstuff people like we can unstuff, you know, our clothing that we no longer want. You don't throw people away. And that's not what I'm advocating. But, you know, in today's culture with social media and in the Internet, it has sort of cheapened our friendships a lot, I think. And we have very a very broad wide range of friendships and yet they're very shallow and so i think that it's that's something that's really missing in people's lives and it and takes a lot away from our lives when we're not cultivating those deep and meaningful friendships but we can't be have deep and meaningful friendships with 500 people on facebook you have to be real selective and that's what i what i talk about in the book is about how you can focus on those friendships that are really the most meaningful and and make those a priority in your life. It is a great way to get started with some spring cleaning to not only unstuff your your house, but also to declutter your home, mind, and soul. The book's called Unstuffed. It's an easy read and one that I think, um, no matter how much you personally may struggle with this or a loved one does, I think can be an invaluable tool getting that process started. Check it out, the book newly published by Zondervan. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Also on Ruth's website, livingwellspendingless.com. That's livingwellspendingless.com. And our thanks to Ruth Sokup for being with us. The book, Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.